Anyways, I'm totally Justin Party right now. Make it happen. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. Stephanie has to recover from laughing so yeah. that she can tell you. Because I'm hilarious, that's you, why. It's true. Yes. It's true. What a, what what a good time It's not only is Pastor Matt hilarious, but he is here to answer your tough questions about the Bible. Amen. Exactly. He's going to bring some real answers. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so we're going to jump into some follow-up questions, and then we're going to j- hit some questions from Acts chapter 18 today. That's what we'll be walking through. But before we do that, we got to dip in here to some of the fabulous reviews. Uh, you guys, our wonderful listeners, have been leaving us here on the iTunes store and on Facebook. Last week, Pastor Matt, you asked if we've gotten a bad review. Yes, I did. So I went and I dug into iTunes and I looked for our most critical review. And here it is. It is a three-star review from Alvenka. This critical review says, great teaching podcast. Love the way Pastor Matt is so real and lays it down in terms that I understand. That's so, the worst we got. That's the worst we've got so far. I can die now. I, I can know, die I can, a happy man. Alvenka, yes. I really wish you could have pushed at least a four- or fifth star in I that one. I appreciate though. I bet she is, you know, very specific with when she gives five stars. I'd love to see. I would love to see what Alvinka thinks of the five star podcast. Yeah, you know really what? Good. That's two if things. We're a three star. Yeah, write into us. Let us know what's your favorite. What's your five star podcast? And what do we need to do yeah. to get those extra two stars? We'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. Uh, one more. Uh, one more review came from Erica Bett. I grew up in the church, and this podcast is proving that there is still so much for me to learn. Not only is it helping me with my walk, but I'm also able to share a lot of what I hear with others. Side note: for those of you guys that are new Christians or non Christians listening to the show, when Christians say with my walk. We're talking about our relationship with Jesus there. Yeah. Well, it's talking about being a Christian. Okay, exactly. exactly. In real life. Exactly. Christian lingo. I had to explain your explanation you. for a new Christian. <laughs> That's right. Dude, I got an idea. I got an idea. What if we Ooh. what if we start dealing with we bring in every single week like a Christian slang term like that it's long Christianese. Christian. Yeah, Christianese oh. and then we undo one. That you are speaking the language yeah, yeah. of my heart. Okay, right this now. is going to be a segment. Can, Can you we, write this down? Yes. Yeah, it's a new segment. Here we go. Starting next week. Uh, she continues. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for throwing it down for the people. And thank you to Justin and Stephanie for keeping it real and making us laugh. You guys are awesome. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. You are welcome. And hey, before we jump into the show, we got to remind you, we have that awesome debrief swag Hydro Flask giveaway going. And you guys have till the uh, November 1st show when we announce our winners on that one. If you missed episode 36, you can go back and hear when we kicked off the contest. But all you got to do is make sure that you like the debrief podcast uh, on Facebook. So just search the debrief podcast on Facebook, hit that like button. You can stay in the loop when we publish new episodes. You can also find all the information about this uh, giveaway. All you got to do is use a selfie, post a selfie of yourself wearing your debrief t-shirt and uh, use the hashtag debrief swag and you will be in the running to get a fantastic uh, hydro flask, custom themed, custom colored for the show. And uh, we got to give a couple shout outs there. First of all, to Rustin, who's listening from Texas. Obviously, he cannot buy a debrief t-shirt because they're only available at our local campuses. He made himself his own debrief t-shirt. Like, And at first glance, I thought it was a regular t-shirt. He did a really good job. Yes, good job. So shout out to that. From where in Texas? He's listening. He, uh, uh, somewhere <laughs> Texas. in Texas. I just stumped you. Yeah. yeah no clue. No, because no, I was on an airplane flying to Houston mm-hmm. and I had somebody come up to me on the airplane and um, 
I think you weren't with me, it was Wyatt, and came up to me and said, hey, I just want you to know I love the debrief. So I was on an airplane. Oh, I was oh, like 35,000 feet in the air. Was it a Somewhere man? of New Mexico. Yes, it was. Maybe it was him. And we're, I was, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure I was on my way to Houston. So I'm wondering if it was, is it Rustin? That's his name. Yeah. Well, whoever you are, mystery Texan, let us know. We got to gotta solve. That's a great name to use when you leave your iTunes Ooh, review exactly. with five stars. Fan, fantastic. I everyone from Texas was named Roy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is awesome. like Everyone I know from Texas is Roy. That's awesome. Uh, hey, if you want to enter the contest, all the details are up in the show notes for this episode. You can find those at debrief.show slash 37. Well, and guys, coming up next week here on the podcast, we're doing a special episode all about politics and voting. Pastor Matt has nicknamed it Prepare to be Offended. That's right. Yeah. So now is the time to send in your questions for Pastor Matt on any topic related to politics and voting. We're going to record a special episode next week just dedicated to that topic. So make sure to get those questions in. Easiest way to send those in is by sending us a message on Facebook or going to www.debrief.show and click the big red button that says Ask a question. Are you ready to jump into some questions, Pastor Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Here we go. We got a couple of follow-up questions from the last few episodes before we get into Acts chapter 18. This first one comes from Alex. Says, in a recent sermon, you mentioned how if we want to see ourselves, we should look at our friends and not the mirror. And if we're the one Christian trying to influence our friends who aren't believers, we can't. I've always felt that if I stopped hanging out with old friends completely, then it might hurt my chances of leading them to Christ. How do you recommend dealing with our non-Christian friendships? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, first of all, let's start with scripture. The Bible says, bad company corrupts good character. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to understand ourselves first. So the truth is, sin is more attractive than righteousness. It just is. That's why we we, we go towards it and we and we pursue it. And so we need to have people that encourage us to make the right choices and not the wrong choices. So I didn't say to never have friends. The point I was trying to make in this sermon was the best way to define yourself is to look at your friends. And if all your friends are idiots, drug addicts, losers, going nowhere, what that tells you is who you are comfortable being with. And what that says is something about you. I'm not talking about not genuinely trying to share your faith, not trying to lead people to Christ. I think those things are important. But the reality is you need to grow in your faith and you need to surround yourself with people who are helping you grow in your faith. And that's why community group, church volunteering, you know, getting involved at Sandals is so essential because part of changing your life is breaking the hold that those old, old relationships have on you. And here's just the bottom line. Very few of your friends are going to change and give their lives to Christ. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it requires dying to yourself. You have chosen to die to yourself and live for Jesus. And that's a big choice in most people's lives. Most people want to live for themselves. And unfortunately, Jesus Jesus says they're going to lose themselves. So that's the point that I was trying to make is, is don't surround yourself constantly with people who aren't encouraging your faith in Christ. God created the church for a reason. We need the church in our life. The church helps us grow. It exposes our areas of weakness that God wants to change and transform, and it helps us to become like Christ. Your non-Christian friends are not helping you in that way. And that doesn't mean that God can't use them occasionally, but his primary tool for changing your life is the church. And so I think that you can have a special place in your heart, um, you know, for your, your your lost friends, just like Paul had a special place in his heart for the Jewish people. Mm. But ultimately, what you're about is growing in Christ and sharing your faith. And so here's what I would say is, I would have an honest conversation with your friends. Sit them down one-on-one -on -one in a non-offensive way and say, look, things have changed. This is who I am. This is what I'm about if you can respect those boundaries, I mean, I'll give them an opportunity to receive Christ. If they say no, can you respect who I am and will you support me 
in who I am. And that's what we need to do as Christians. It's okay to have non-Christian friends who support you in your faith. But if they're attacking you, if they're dragging you down, if they're encouraging you to smoke dope, sleep around, party, um, you know, be angry, a bigot, whatever, you, you can't participate with that anymore. So if you have non-Christian friends who respect your faith, and by the way, they're only going to respect it to the level that you demand respect, which is basically you asking for it and you living with integrity. Mm-hmm. Integrity demands respect. So if you're a hypocrite, they're not going to respect you. So I would just say, you know, your friends that are in your life that are willing to respect you and the changes that you've made, that's a good thing. Just like if you're an alcoholic and you you get sober, you have to be you can be around people who who drink as long as they understand that you have made a substantial change in your life and you believe that ultimately this is for the best of you. But if you have somebody that's encouraging you and saying, "Hey, it's just one drink, what does that matter?" Why would you be with that person? And so for me, when I gave my life to Christ, I lost all my friends, lost my girlfriend. Like I, my, my whole friendship cycle changed and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And here's the thing is, we're talking 25 years later and some of those friends that I left are still the same, mm-hmm. doing the mm-hmm. same things. They've not grown up. Their lives are a disaster. And I'm so glad that I you know, pulled the Band-Aid off quickly and, and made the change because I needed that. And the reality was I wasn't strong enough to stand up on my own. And so I think most people aren't. And a lot of people at our church, you know, they don't have, um, they don't have family that's encouraging them. They don't have friends that encourage them. And they don't know anybody about Sandals. So start working to know people at Sandals Church and let them help you in this area. I love that line. Integrity demands respect. That's, I know. I'm I just tweeted it. It was very good. <laughs> uh, this next question from Alexis says, with Halloween approaching, a conversation recently came up in a group of young girls I'm leading. They asked whether or not watching scary movies and participating in haunted houses, et cetera, is inviting evil into our lives. I personally avoid these things as they make me feel very heavy and unsettled, but would love a biblical reference. Yeah. Well, let me answer this question the way I want to. I think the thing that's far more disturbing is the way that girls dress on Halloween. Mm. You know, my wife and I were walking by Spencer's in the mall the other day, and literally, you know, the outfits that girls wear to Halloween parties now look like an outfit that a wife would wear before a sexual interaction with her husband. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's just, it's lingerie. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just literally an opportunity for women to dress up like prostitutes, and I, I don't understand that. So to me, that is far more problematic than a haunted house or a scary movie. Now, having said that, um, you know, if, if they bother you, don't watch them. Don't watch them, don't participate with them. Here's the thing as Christians, all of us have different things that we can handle and not handle, and if those things open up an opportunity for the enemy in you, don't do it, because you need to make sure that you guard your own walk and your own faith. I can watch some things that my wife can't watch. So I don't make her watch those things. She chooses not to to participate in that, and I honor that. So that's what I would say is if you don't feel like it's good for you, don't do it. The Bible says don't violate your own conscience. If you feel like something is wrong to you, don't do it. It's probably the Holy Spirit speaking to you. So what you need to not do is get all legalistic and tell everybody they should never go to a haunted house or never go to uh, a scary movie. Now, having said that, you know, I'm looking at where like Not Scary Farm has gone, and I know Rick Warren has stepped up Pastor Saddleback Church and mm-hmm. actually got them to change one of their haunted houses. I don't know if you guys knew that, yeah, because they had this whole haunted house that was about a, a mental asylum and how it, you know, kind of um, really, really pushes people that are battling mental illness into a corner, and it and it really brings out a lot of the, um, you know, the old thinking about mental disease and yeah. battles with depression and stuff like that. And so they actually shut that down. But so much of this stuff is just twisted and this fascination with murder and, you know, serial killers and psychos and all that stuff. 
if that doesn't tell you that something's wrong with our culture, I don't know what is. I mean, you know, that's why I don't watch any of the Saw movies, watching people trapped and cut into pieces. Like, I, that's just me. That's that's not good for me. I am a little bit curious, you know, if there's a, if a demonic movie or something like that, I might be persuaded to go see it. But if it involves torture, if it involves, you know, murder, I, I just, what, what, what about that is glorifying to God? I mean, it's representing, to me, it's just like pornography. I don't watch pornography because... It is taking a beautiful thing, you know, uh, called sex that God invented to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, and it's it's cheapening it and it's destroying it and it's turning it into sin. Here, you know, murder is taking this beautiful thing called life that's God give that's God given and it's destroying it and distorting it. And people watch this stuff where people are tortured and maimed, and we wonder why, as a culture, we're tweaked. I mean, the things that we watch influence us, put ideas in our minds, and mess with us, and especially people with mental illnesses. That that stuff falls into their hands, it gives them a very distorted view of reality, and 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 I believe can encourage sadistic, murderous behavior. So that was a wow, that was a whole like, uh, what do you call it, route there on right. that. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah. So I'm going to summarize, make sure I got that right. Is that essentially you're going to say there's there's not like a very clear biblical yes or no on this, but use yeah. discretion in your own context. Yeah, you, you got to be careful. It's like, for example, uh, a couple of years ago, Pastor Andrew and I, a pastor of our Woodcrest campus, were invited to a Halloween party. I really felt like we should go. There was going to be drinking there. There was going to be probably, you know, um, women dressed inappropriately. These people were lost people at our gym who invited us to the thing. I really wanted to go. Turned out we couldn't go because the reason I wanted to go to the party was not to go to the party, but it was to ultimately lead this couple to Jesus. That was my purpose in wanting to go to establish a relationship with him. They didn't know that I was a pastor. They just knew that we worked out at the gym together and they invited me. And that doesn't happen a whole lot in our society, getting Mm -hmm. invited to a party by random people. And I'm like, okay. So I ultimately didn't get to go, but I wanted to go. And my wife thought it was weird. She's like, why do you want to go to that? I said, I wouldn't want to go to that with a bunch of Christians, but non-Christians, opportunity to share the gospel, man, and, and, and tell people about who I am and talk about the church and the vision of being real, that's a great opportunity. But I'm not going to stumble. You know, I'm not going to go get drunk. I'm not going to smoke dope. Like, you can offer me marijuana a thousand times, and it, you know, 999, I'm not going to be like, maybe. It's not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to smoke it. I have no ambition whatsoever to participate in something that I think is foolish and stupid and destructive, but I care about people lost people. And so you just have to be honest with yourself about how strong you are and know what your temptation is. Um, you know, for example, if somebody invited me to a strip club, that would be a temptation for me. That's going to put some images in my mind and I wouldn't go. I want the person to be saved, but I'm not going. I'm not mm-hmm. going there because that doesn't, that's going to have an unhealthy effect on me. But going to a party where people are drinking, it's, that's not going to destroy me or ruin me. I think, I think getting drunk is stupid. So, and it, yeah. does, it doesn't have a hold on me. For some people, that's a real pull. So you got to be careful. Well, thanks for those questions, guys. Those were uh, really good ones and appropriate right now. So let's jump into Acts chapter 18. That's right. We're going to start off with verses 1 through 2, where it says, uh, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. So right off the bat, why were all the Jews deported from Rome? Yeah, yeah. that seems like a pretty big yeah, that's a move. Big deal. Yeah, well, I mean, you know... Um, Jews have been mistreated throughout human history. So, I mean, anti-Semitism, which is the word that is used to describe racism against Jews, is a real thing. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. And, um, you know, that comes from, I, I think, really two sources. I mean, the Jews believe they're chosen people of God. That's rather offensive to the world when you say, I'm picked, you're not. That, that bothers people. Right. And the second reason for that is Jews are very, very focused on their own culture. They don't uh, 
acclimate to the culture around them. They create their own foods, their own culture. So what they do is they create a subculture no matter where they they go. They don't acclimate and become a part of the nation. So Jews don't become Romans. They didn't become Greeks. They didn't become Persians. They remained Jews. And that's that's an attribute to the strength of their culture because they feel like God has called them to live this way and be this way. Um, But that's not why I think that they were thrown out of Rome in somewhere between AD 49 and AD 50. We're not exactly sure, but we know when Claudius became emperor, so Mm -hmm. there's there's actual history that says when he did that. There's actual... uh, a guy, I, I think it's pronounced Salutis. I have to, I have to double check that. But he actually writes that the reason um, was that th- within the Jewish uh, culture in Rome, they were fighting over a guy by the name of Crestus. It's probably a typo through through history. You know, and mm. by typo, they didn't have typewriters. Yeah. But the scribe probably made an error, and it's probably Christ. So it's mm. the Latin version of Christ. So there's this huge uproar within Rome, within the Jewish community, and it got so bad and it got so nasty that Claudius said, "You got to get out of here." And so he kicked them all out. And so it's amazing. And so we just need to understand it. I mean, this is phenomenal. Some of you guys, maybe you listen to this podcast, you're not a Christian, or you're struggling with whether or not to become a Christian. You need to know this, that Jesus Christ died in AD 33, nowhere in the world. Jerusalem was nowhere town. Mm-hmm. He was, he, not only was you know, it nowhere, he was from a nothing town called Nazareth that the world had never heard of. Not significant in, in, in any way. And here we are 17 years later, 16 to 17 years later, and the most powerful nation the world has ever seen is literally being ripped apart by, is this guy who died on an insignificant cross in Jerusalem the son of God or not? Mm-hmm. It is ripping the capital city, Rome and all its power, to its knees so that where Claudius says, okay, you guys all got to get out because this is a huge problem. And we know from the letter of Romans, when Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he hadn't visited them yet, that people in the house of Caesar were becoming followers of Christ. So this was personally affecting Emperor Claudius. It was affecting, you know, his senators. It was affecting his Roman legions. This was impacting his entire community. 17 years later, Mm -hmm. literally the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the world and is absolutely amazing. And so we need to know this. This isn't 50 years later, 100 years later, 200 years later, you know, where myth and legend can take place. 17 years later. So think about this. This would this would almost be like us talking about the event of 9-11 and how it changed the world. 9-11 wasn't that long ago, 2001. Mm-hmm. So it'd be 15 years ago. So you just, just add two more years to that. And, and, you know, think about how 9-11 has impacted our lives. Jesus Christ impacted the lives of the world without internet, without telephone, without mm-hmm. mass media. Yeah. Literally all over the world, the known world at the time, Jesus Christ is bringing the world to its knees, and the empire that that murdered him, the Romans, are now starting to believe in him. And so, they so were you said out. it's really important for non Christians to kind of pay attention to what you're just saying here. I think I track with what you're saying. Why is that so important for? Because a, a lot of non Christians believe that it's all a joke. They say, "Well, this stuff is written by men. It's all made up." Da da da. You know, blah 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 blah. To quote Justin, I love when you do that. <laughs> and 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 here's what they're doing: is they're not acknowledging the fact that in 17 years, in 17 years, without internet, without telephone, without modern technology, this unknown schism of Judaism. So remember, there weren't even enough Jews in Jerusalem to overturn a mob to crucify Christ. We know that it started with 12, and then it grew to 120, then 3,000, then 5,000, which sounds big if you're a church, but when you're comparing that to the population of the world, right? not a lot of people. Not a lot of people. And then all of a sudden, 17 years later, this Christianity, this Crestus, 
is causing so much drama in Rome that the only solution that the Roman emperor can think to solve the problem is kick every single Jew out of his city. That's his solution. We got to get these guys out because this is a huge problem. It's stirring up the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus did. He stirred up the world. And so, you know, to say that, you know, that there is no historical evidence for Jesus Christ or that this stuff is all just made up and it's just, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. You're not looking at the evidence. The evidence strongly suggests that something took place in Jerusalem that led these monotheistic Jews who believe that God could never become a human being to all of a sudden say, God There's did become a human being. Resurrected. Yeah, he is resurrected, and the resurrection proved it. And oh, by the way, there's only salvation, you know, through Jesus and Jesus alone. And they took this message all over the known world and they died for it. Yeah. And it changed the world. So all I'm saying is this is a profound historical moment in the life of the church because we have external biblical evidence that substantiates what Luke is saying here. Something happened in Rome. Luke doesn't even tell us that the reason is Jesus. Roman history says it was Crestus. Mm-hmm. That's that's why that's why all these Jews were kicked out. So it's pretty powerful. That's awesome. Okay, so the very next verse here says Paul lived and worked with them. So this is Priscilla and Aquila, for they were tent makers just as he was. So I think this is pretty interesting that Paul seems to be stopping his mission to live here and work with Aquila and Priscilla as a tent maker. Why would he do that? Because you got to do what you got to do to tell people about Jesus. You know. So when Tammy and I, we, we were just reflecting this week on the history of Sandals Church and. You know, I always say if I ever wrote a book on Sandals Church, it would be how not to plant a church because <laughs> we did every single thing wrong. Like I didn't read any books about planting a church. I didn't study, you know, Gen X, which is my gen. I I, I didn't study any of that. I, I just literally felt like, well, these are the things that I think that the church needs to be about. And it happened and took place. But there was a time when we started Sandals Church, I was a teacher. Why? Because the church couldn't pay me. And so I did what I needed to do. And so the Apostle Paul has probably run out of the money that he received from Antioch from his original mission, and he needs to take some time to support himself. He's ran into Priscilla and Aquila, who also happen to be tent makers, who also happen to be Christians. And so he's going to partner with them and to work alongside them so that he can build these tents and sell them so that he can make money and establish his mission. And this is the first time, you know, we see in church history this idea of a bivocational pastor coming up, a person who leads the church but also has a job on the side. And by the way, I think in the future that will be the most uh, the most common form of pastors that we see as mm-hmm. uh, America becomes less and less um, interested in Christianity and really more uh, aggressive towards our nonprofit status, towards taxing us, regulating us, and all those things. I think you're going to see a lot of pastors who have to take side jobs in order to support their local congregations. And so Paul did it because he had to, mm-hmm. and that's why he did it. So um, pretty amazing that Paul is willing to do whatever it takes. And he says that in Corinthians, he says it multiple times, that he never asked people for money, that what he wanted to do was he wanted to tell them about the gospel free of charge. And that's why, you know, at Sandals Church, it's so important uh, for those of you who are Christians to give and give faithfully so that when people come to church, they don't think we're all about their money because we're not. We want them to be saved. And I believe once God has your heart, he'll have your money and he'll take care of that. And I don't need to pressure you, twist you, or manipulate you in any way to participate in that. But to non-believers, and let's be honest, there are some people that manipulate and get rich and wealthy and take the money from the church and build their own kingdom. That's not what we're about here at Sounds Church. We're about God's kingdom. And it's so important that that is 
readily seen by those who come and visit the church. So they don't feel like what we're after is their money. And so Paul does that so that he can reach the church in Corinth. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Side note, we are working hard towards meeting that goal. God's planted in a heart of that debrief jet. So if you want to support us, um, <laughs> yeah. just uh, send in your donations. Just write debrief jet. And uh, yeah, that's in our next context. Is I have a feeling jet. right now somebody is going to like Toys R Us and buying us a little jet. They're going to paint debrief on it. Well, so moving on, it says that each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. So this weekend at church, the sermon was all about how to speak up and use our voice to tell people about Jesus. But here's Paul walking away and basically telling these people he's innocent and they're on their own. How do we reconcile what Paul's doing here with our responsibility to share Jesus yeah. with people? Absolutely. So I think last week we had a question on the watchman. What is the watchman? Yeah, yeah. So actually, this is that would have been a great question for this week, because what Paul really is quoting here is this idea from Ezekiel 33. And so um, if you want to look that up and read that chapter, it's all about Ezekiel being called as a watchman. And so what is the watchman's responsibility? It's to sound the trumpet when incoming uh, troops are coming. when judgment is coming, when something bad is coming, and they are to sound the trumpet and warn the people of impending judgment. And here's the thing in Ezekiel 33, God says, I will hold the watchman accountable if he does not sound the alarm. So if he doesn't sound the alarm, the blood of the people in the city is on the watchman's head. Mm -hmm. But if he sounds the alarm and the people of the city don't listen, and they refuse to acknowledge this incoming judgment or incoming threat, then the watchman is free from judgment. The bl- their blood is on their own hands. And so what Paul is doing here is he's quoting the Old Testament to say, I have been Ezekiel to you. I have warned you repeatedly. I have argued with you. I have told you about the you know, upcoming judgment. And not only have you not listened, but you've insulted me. And so I am g- literally no longer going to speak to you about this. I'm going to warn people who want to listen. And so this is the thing that I think we need to pay special attention to as Christians. Who are the people in my life that want to hear this news? Focus on those people. Some of us spend all of our time maybe arguing with our dad, arguing with our mom, arguing with our friend about whether or not Jesus Christ, and we get into these debates and we feel good like we're somehow sharing the gospel. At some point, after you've shared your faith multiple times, you need to dust off your feet and you need to go your own way and say, you know what? I've told you. I've told you repeatedly what you need to do. I love you, but I'm going my own way. And I'm now going to go tell people, you know, who haven't heard the gospel, who've never heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, you live in a city, whatever city you live in, surrounded by thousands of people who have no idea who Jesus is. Ask God to point you to those people that you need to share your faith with because they're there and they don't know. They have no idea why Jesus Christ is so important and why we can't be safe without him. So I think it's absolutely important that we all share our faith and that we do so strategically uh, with people who've never heard it. So share your faith a couple of times. And then if it doesn't work, go your own way. And I know that offends people, but Jesus said to do it. Paul does it. And, and you should do it. Once you've shared your faith multiple times and a person won't listen, you know, who's the idiot now? Hmm. Them or you? You're, you're the fool. If you repeatedly keep trying to get the fool to be wise then you're the fool. So so move on to someone else. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you stop caring about that person or you stop loving that person. It means you stop arguing with that person and you start sharing the gospel with somebody who wants to hear. And let me just say that, you know, to every Christian that's listening to the debrief, 
my prayer is that you would be utilizing your time to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and then to spend your time discipling somebody. And what does that mean? Teaching them how to follow Jesus. What does that mean as a single person, as a married person, as an old person, a rich person, a poor person? What does it mean to follow Jesus? That's what it means to disciple somebody. And you should be meeting with them on a regular basis in your small group, checking in, helping them to understand the Bible and and, and to know how to follow Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And by the way, we're all, all three of us are gonna be held accountable on Judgment Day. Did you tell people about Jesus? And did you help people to follow me? Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the two things that we're gonna be held accountable for. And none of all this other stuff matters. So we need to be doing this. And so Paul says, I'm done with you guys because all you want to do is insult me. Um, okay, so then Paul leaves the synagogue in verses seven through eight, say he went to the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. There, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. So Paul ends up next door with the leader of the synagogue, and, and the, he becomes a believer. He just left the synagogue and all of those people. So what kind of impact would it have had on Crispus if he converts to Christianity? Oh, huge impact. And let's go back to that earlier question of, you know, should I go to these parties? And should I? Look, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, you are drawing a, drawing a spiritual line in the sand that has physical ramifications. When you say, I am with Jesus, that means by definition, you are not with those who reject Jesus. And so, you know, we have this leader of the synagogue who's drawn a line in the sand, and he said, I am a follower of Jesus. And this has real consequences for him. Mm -hmm. He loses his status, he loses his privilege, he loses his authority, and probably even loses some money. So think about it, as a Jew, he would have operated not just relationally within a Jewish context, but economically. Mm -hmm. So he's walking away from money, power, influence, and all these things because he is convinced that Jesus Christ is the way. And it just shows us that the call of Christ, man, sometimes it means you got to break up with a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Uh, just last week at church, I was talking to this guy who listens to the debrief, and I don't want to say his name, but hopefully he's listening, but he's homosexual. And he's been coming to Sandals Church, and he loves the debrief, and he listens. And he just came up to me. I think you were standing next to me, and he just said, um, I'm so grateful because the debrief has helped me realize that I'm not supposed to live out these feelings. I'm supposed to live for Jesus. And I just hugged him, and we prayed together, and I was so proud of him. And it was just so amazing because he gets it. And I wow, wish that heterosexuals so cool. could get it that way. Seriously. It's not just homosexuals that are called to this line in the sand. As heterosexuals, we'll call, we'll call to the same line, that we are to no longer live for ourselves. Our bodies are no longer ours. We have been purchased with a price. It's not about our rights. It's about the rights of Christ that he has in our life. And we have to submit to that. And I just was so proud of him because... You know, sometimes as a pastor, I get a little downtrodden on all the people that are living in sin and just screwing up their lives and not paying attention. And it's just so nice to know that some people understand, like this Jewish leader, look, following Jesus means I'm going to have to say no to some things in my life that I've enjoyed. And for this guy, it was privilege, power, and money. And he said no to all those things. And I'm sure he lost everything. Mm -hmm. But he got a new family in Christ. Yeah. So hanging out with Priscilla and Aquila. Maybe he, cool. maybe he's going to learn how to make tents. Yeah. Now that he's, well, he's going to have to do something. Now he's unemployed. <laughs> uh, so moving on, it says that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent for I am with you and no one will attack and harm you for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. So in this instance, is God commanding Paul to not be afraid because Paul is afraid of something specific? 
Yo, absolutely. We, we don't know what that specifically was, but we know from his track record, right? There's threats of death. And there was probably some very, very real talk by the Jews and, and perhaps the Gentiles in, in the city to take his life. Especially after this leader just converted. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's some real hostility. And so in other instances, what does he do? He flees. So like, for example, when he was in uh, Berea, Thessalonica and Berea a couple weeks ago, man, they escorted him out of town to Athens as quickly as possible because they, they were going to kill him. They wanted, the, they wanted him dead. And so perhaps he's thinking, you know, I got to leave Corinth as well. Now, here's the difference. Thessalonica was the Greek capital of, 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 of Greece because Romans picked Thessalonica. They didn't pick Athens, um, but Athens had kind of fell out of favor. It was a smaller town. Its zenith had come and gone, and uh, it's no longer as important as it once was. The most important city in Greece is Corinth. Hmm. It is the capital, like, economically. So it would be like Thessalonica maybe is D.C., but Corinth is New York Manhattan. City or something. Yeah, yeah, it's Manhattan. So it is the economic hub, and it's the most important city. And so God wants Paul to stay in Corinth, um, which is an incredibly sinful city. Uh, the word to Corinthian size meant to live sinfully. They were very, very into everything disgusting and repulsive. And it's interesting that it's in places like that where the gospel flourishes. Because once you've had it all, seen it all, done it all, you realize it, it doesn't satisfy and those places are ripe for the gospel because when you've lived for yourself and you've completely indulged and you've tried to, uh, you know, feed all of your fantasies, you realize it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. That's what Solomon said. He said, I, I, take, I, took, I took part in everything that I could. I spared myself no pleasure. That's what the um, book of Ecclesiastes says. And he realized at the end it was all useless. And so here it is in Corinth, these people turn in mass to the gospel. And the Apostle Paul spends a year and a half there building leaders, preaching, teaching. And so think about that. He only spent three weeks in Thessalonica, uh, only a couple of days probably in Berea. We're not exactly sure the timeline in Berea, but it was only three Sabbaths in the Thessalonica. The Bereans studied the Word of God every day, but he got driven out of there. He maybe had a couple of weeks in Athens, but here he's in Corinth for a year and a half. He spends more time here than any other place uh, on this mission. And and the, one of the most incredible churches, I mean, there's a lot of problems in this church too, but one of the most incredible churches receives two letters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, mm -hmm. that he writes to them, produces amazing leaders like Apollos and these other guys. It's it's truly an amazing, amazing place. And so um, there was probably some, some death threats to him, but God said, don't worry, I got this. I got this city. I'm going to move here in spite of what these people are saying. And what's amazing, despite all the opposition, God did incredible things. I mean, you have to think, that's pretty profound for the leader of the synagogue to get saved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine, you, you go to a mosque and you preach the gospel and all the Muslims threaten you, but the, the, the imam follows you out and gives his life to Christ. I mean, that's, yeah. that's pretty profound. Mm -hmm. And so the Holy Spirit is definitely doing something here. So it's incredible. Yeah, it seems interesting too to see that Paul is probably really living out this idea of being real. Um, in terms of, you know, sharing that he's got fears, but that God is encouraging him to, you know, even Luke or whoever's traveling with him so that it would end up being written down here, not just pretending like he's got it all together as this spiritual mm -hmm. leader and stuff. So oh, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that, that Paul would have had to tell someone about this vision that he saw from yeah. God. Yeah. Not just keep it to himself. So one of the things that God says to Paul in this um, vision here, he says, many people in this city belong to me. Now that that's really interesting. What does that mean? Yeah, so God has chosen the Jews, you know, as his people for his own possession. 
to glorify his name, but he's also chosen amongst the Gentiles. The Bible refers to them as the elect, people that belong to him, people that he has called, that he's pursuing, that he's going after. And um, what he's saying there is that, Paul, you need to stay here because I guarantee that there's going to be a receptivity to the gospel here because there are people that I know. I already know them. And God knows in advance. Uh, I don't believe this you know, violates their free will, but God knows in advance that these people are in fact going to be saved. And that's pretty powerful. I mean, think about that. Like if you're going to share the gospel and you, and you share with your 10 friends the gospel, like you have everybody over and you say, here, I'm a Christian. I want to explain the gospel to you. Think about how much more bold you would be if you knew that two or three of your friends would give their lives to Christ and be in heaven forever. You wouldn't be distracted by the seven who rejected. You would be inspired by the three that you knew were going to be saved. And so we need to remember that, that just like God pursued you, God chose you, God has done that for some of your friends, some of your family members, uh, some of your coworkers, your neighbors, and God is moving and working in their hearts. And you need to share the gospel with confidence to know that God's spirit is working and he is moving and he's encouraging Paul here, don't give up, don't be afraid. And, and what's amazing here is even the most bold and courageous Christians need encouragement. Mm-hmm. And so Paul was bold and courageous, but he needed encouragement here. And uh, basically God was guaranteeing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move here. There's going to be a revival amongst my, my, my Jewish people here and the Gentiles here, the likes that you have not seen. And so Paul is so inspired, he stays there for a year and a half mm-hmm. um, and, and sees this incredible church grow, the church at Corinth. It's absolutely amazing. So in verses 14 through 15, Paul now ends up, and he's kind of on trial from the local uh, Jewish leaders, got him on trial in front of the governor here, whose name's Gallio, and it says, as he's starting to make his defense, Gallio turns to Paul's accusers and says, listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have had a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. So Gallio does not appear to be a believer here or anything, but his decision ultimately is what allows Paul to continue preaching in the city. So is he maybe one of the people God told Paul, like, belong to him? Well, we don't know if he became a Christian or not, but we know this, that that God, ultimately we all belong to God, whether we follow him or not, because he has created all of us. But I think what, what... what God is showing Paul here is whether people accept me or not, I'm in control. Rome is not in control. Hmm. So Rome thought they were in control when they crucified Christ. Rome was not in control. God drove the entire crucifixion. What's amazing here is uh, Gallio, um, I think, exercises more wisdom than Pilate. So Pilate was persuaded by the crowds to kill Jesus when he knew that he didn't do anything wrong. Gallio is not persuaded. He's not duped by these people. He, he gets that this whole thing's a scam. And so he says, look, man, this is a dispute between your own theology, and I'm not, I'm not even going to listen to this. This is ridiculous. There's no crime that's been committed here. And I think this is important, especially as we jump into um, you know, the future conversation about politics. I think oftentimes Christians try to elect a pastor to be president, and what we need is a wise person to be president. Hmm. Because God can use a Christian or a non-Christian to accomplish his will. They don't. They, God oftentimes uses non-believers to exercise his will. He uses the king of Persia. He does this, um, you know, all throughout the scriptures. Ultimately, he uses Pilate to crucify Christ to bring about his will. But what we need to do as Christians is we need to say, who exercises the most wisdom? Who has the most insight? Who's the most reasonable person? Not who's the person who can espouse a Bible verse and manipulate us. Because the truth is, all politicians are manipulating us. They're, they're, they're using us. Every group is used. Right. You know, uh, the Black Caucus is used. 
uh, the evangelical right is used, liberals are used. I mean, the NRA, they're all used for political gain and power. And so what we want to elect is a Galio, somebody that's going to say, look, I'm going to let you guys decide how to worship God on your own. That's something between you. What I'm not going to let you do is take over you know, this whole um, Aragopagus, or excuse me, this whole square here, and you're not going to ruin our whole city because of this little this little segment that involves you. And um, I think that's what we need to pray for, for our leaders, you know, get get out of telling us, you know, who we're supposed to be as Christians. And, and so much of where America screwed up is they're trying to tell everybody else how to live. Mm-hmm. And it used to be the religious right, but now it's the liberal left that's telling everybody, you know, how to live and what to do. And it's just, it's just so unfortunate. Um, but this just proves to you that a non-believer who exercises wisdom is still beneficial to us, which is why Paul, in the letter to Romans, says to pray for those who are in power over you. Pray for your kings. Pray for your senators. Pray for these these people. And I hear Christians all the time say, you know, about Obama, well, he's not my president. Well, he is, because he was elected. Mm-hmm. And as a Christian, we have to we have to believe that God's not surprised by that, mm-hmm. that he's a part of that process. And so whether we agree with him or not or support him or not, he is our president, and we need to pray for him or her, you know, if it ends up being Hillary Clinton in this issue, um, or Donald Trump or, you know, somebody else. So um, this guy exercises incredible wisdom here, and we need to be grateful because we need our leaders to be wise, because ultimately they can destroy our lives with their stupidity. Mm-hmm. And so right here, this guy exercises wisdom, and Paul's okay. Mm-hmm. He's basically, the Jews are told to back off. This is not this is not an issue that I'm going to be involved in. This is something silly between you guys. Yeah, it's interesting that you pointed out that Paul writes about that in the letter to Romans, Romans chapter 12. I'd never connected the dots that he's maybe gone through this experience, and he's yeah. got that in his head mm-hmm. when he's thinking about writing. Hey, yeah, pray for your leaders. That's, that's really Well, because Paul's whole life, he stood before Roman governors that determined his fate. Right, interesting. You know, and so he real and, and so I think a lot of times as Christians, we don't think about our fate being ter- determined by our governors, mayors, uh, you know, senators, congressmen, and presidents, but it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if, if we have a president that decides that we need to go with war with somebody, you know, I have a son, my daughters are of the age where they can date young men that go to war and they can die. So we need to be praying for these people that they would exercise wisdom because their decisions can impact not only on our lives, but the lives of the people that we love. Yeah. So then things get weird here at the end. It says this, the crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, I hope I said that right, the no, leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. So one, what caused the Jews to turn against their leader? And why does Gallio just kind of let this go down in his courtroom? Yeah, well, let's go back to uh, Gallio. I, I think he's completely uninterested in this argument, and he thinks it's beneath him. And so he just kind of like, whatever. But the Greek the Greek sentence structure is a little vague here. So we're not exactly who, sure who beats the uh, leader of the synagogue. Okay. It could be that the, the Romans are just like, oh, this is an opportunity to beat up on some Jews. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so they beat him up, or it could be the fellow Jews that got frustrated and angry. And so it, it's a little vague there, and it's a little difficult, but basically there's a riot that ensues. And so to, instead of the Apostle Paul getting beat up, which is what they were all hoping, right? We brought these clubs and these rocks. What are we going to do with these things? Yeah. We came to beat somebody. So they choose mm-hmm. to beat the person that they feel maybe didn't present the case the best, or maybe it was the Romans who thought these idiot Jews are constantly trying to, you know, stir up trouble or whatever. So some scholars take a position on the Greek as to exactly who it was that did the beating. I think the Greek is vague enough that it it, it could have been either group. It could have been Romans who beat the Jewish leader. It could have been Jews that beat the Jewish leader. But either way, he got beat. So 
Okay, so verse 18, the scripture says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, and then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centria. Then he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. So what kind of vow would Paul have ended that required him shaving his head? Yeah, we don't know. So it, it probably has some kind, something to do with like a Nazarite vow, which um, is spoken about in the book of Numbers. And so it's this vow of dedicating oneself specifically to the work of God, usually it involved not cutting the hair. That's why it's interesting that maybe he cut the hair. And it, it, it's a little odd here. We don't have any history specifically speaking to this, but there were vows that involved the hair. And typically, um, you know, you would cut your hair at the end of the vow, so you would not cut it for a period of time and then at the end. But it seems here to indicate that he shaved his head at the beginning of the vow. Says, and it says mar- to mark the end of the vow. Yeah, so they're they're choosing to interpret it that way. Um, and that, and that, that, that is definitely a possible interpretation. It's, it's Again, the language is a little Greek, okay. a, little, a little gray there as to specifically what happened. But uh, we know that Paul took place, participated in these vows. And so again, we've had this question over and over again, you know, like go back to, you know, why don't we celebrate Sabbath? Sabbath is for Jews. Jews are to remain Jews. And so one of the things that we see here is even though the Apostle Paul argues passionately that Gentiles don't have to become Jews, he remains a Jew. And so one of the things that Jews engage in is vows and these rituals and these rites of shaving the head or not cutting the hair or allowing the hair to grow or doing these things. And he continues to do that. And we're going to see that in a couple chapters in Acts. When he goes to Jerusalem, James is going to encourage him to participate in a public vow actually in the uh, the temple to demonstrate to all of his Jewish brethren that he's still a Jew. And Paul still does it. Why? Because he's a Jew. That's who he is. Mm -hmm. And he's going to continue to worship God through Christ as a Jew. What he's not going to do is make Gentiles become Jews. So we're not exactly sure what he did, but something happened here where he felt like he needed to have an outward sign of some kind of inward call. Maybe that meant to, to have courage, to be brave, to be strong. You know, you think about Samson, the most famous Nazarite in the Bible, what was his strength, or what was his giftedness? It was his strength. And so maybe Paul was, you know, wanting some strength here to be strong, to stay there a year and a half. We're not exactly sure what took place. Sure. Okay, so in verses 19 through 22, it says, They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. So it seems like most of the other times that people ask Paul to stay with them, he stays, ministers to them, teaches them some more. But in this case, he decides not to. How was Paul deciding when he should stay places, when he should move on and do all that? Yeah, I don't think we have any idea. I think he's exercising his own judgment, his own wisdom. I think as a leader, you, you have to you have to balance your own physical capabilities in order to um, you know serve the Lord best. And so he probably was just exhausted, wanted to get back to Antioch. And so as much as he loves the church at Ephesus, he cares for them. He's done. He's spent. He's got to get back home. Um, he's got to check back in. So we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. And so let me say this about the book of Acts. The book of Acts doesn't tell us everything. It, you know, um, if you think about it, he talked a whole lot more about what happened in Berea and Philippi than he did in Corinth. And yet we know that Paul was in Corinth for a lot longer. So we get one little story in Corinth and Paul is there for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. He's in Thessalonica for three weeks. We get that story. He's barely in Berea for any time. He's barely in Athens. And we have these huge stories that take place there. So so other things happen. So Luke is not telling us everything about everything. He's trying to create a narrative about the growth of the church to 
ultimately get Paul to Rome, and he's picking and choosing what to write. He's not telling us everything about everything. And so one of the things that he's excluded here is, why did Paul make that decision? Yeah. He, he just didn't tell us. Okay, so we're closing out the chapter here. Verses 24 through 26 say, Meanwhile, this is in Ephesus, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well. Sounds familiar. <laughs> you have a friend named Apollos? Well, I'm just trying to see if you're going to give me a mental raise for... Uh, oh, yes. Oh. I have a friend named Pastor Matt Brown. Who's an, an eloquent, eloquent speaker. speaker who knows oh, the scriptures well. Thank you very much. See what I, I was trying to... You I tried. thought that was going to work a little bit better. Well, it's kind of it it's kind of a chocolate-covered turd here because he's not saved. Or potentially, mm. he doesn't know Jesus, so... I'm not applying that to you. Oh, so here you. we go. Okay. <laughs> so an, a, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria and Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So what does it mean here that Apollos only knew about John's baptism? Yeah, so there's all kinds of takes here. The answer is we have no idea. All we know is there was some kind of level of ignorance. He was missing out on something. Is this John the Baptist from earlier? Who? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. so he knew about John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance. And so repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He knew something about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard um, Jesus preach. Maybe he actually saw him. Perhaps he didn't know about the resurrection. Maybe he did know about the resurrection, but he hadn't heard about Pentecost yet. He hadn't heard about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling Spirit in the people of God. And so there's just a level of ignorance there that, that he has. So he's a genius, but he still doesn't know everything. And so let me say that to every person, whether you've been a Christian for 10 years or 50 years, there's still going to be some things that you don't know. And, e- and even, you know, myself as, as the chief teacher and leader of this church, I'm learning all the time. All the time I'm learning. Um, I'm opening myself up to, you know, questions from people and, you know, even like JT, that uh, the professor that sends us in some questions. I'm so thankful to him because he has more experience than me. We all need to be learners. No matter what you've learned, there's always more to learn about the gospel. And so here's Apollos, who apparently is a genius mm-hmm. and eloquent, but he's missing some of the truth. And so Aquila and Priscilla know some things that he doesn't know. And so I just like to think about this. You know, he's a young, talented preacher that has a whole career ahead of him to share the gospel, to teach with wisdom, and to lead people to Christ, but he's young and he's a little wet behind the ears. You know what that means? Uh, means like you're, you're just born. So yes, yeah, so still... I was trying to think of a nice way to yeah, describe yeah, it. Yeah. You've, yeah, you've got yeah. the baby goose still. Yeah, the baby yeah. goose still behind your ears. So mm, I, I think that's what it means. And I, I think there's also some actual ignorance here. And I think it makes sense because in Luke 19, we're going to see some more of John the Baptist followers who've heard nothing about the Holy Spirit. Acts 19? Acts 19. What did I say? Luke, Luke 19. 19. Yeah, so Acts 19, sure. yeah, where they've heard nothing about the baptism. And again, you got to remember, news only travels one way, through through personal contact. Mm-hmm. And it's possible that you have not heard about this. And again, there's only 17, 18 years that have passed. And so some of these people are still learning about, oh, because Paul hasn't written you know, many of his letters yet. Um, and, and if they have been written, they haven't been circulated. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's had an opportunity to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying and and learning what all of these things mean and, and they haven't heard Peter preach, so they don't know about these things. So here's Apollos who, you know, is is a devout Jew, he is learned in the way of the Lord, uh, has probably heard some things about Jesus, may in fact be a follower of Jesus, but knows nothing about the power of the Holy of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling uh, of God's presence in a believer. What I love about it is 
he opens himself up and he's humble enough to be like, okay, I'm a genius, but I don't know everything. Yeah, I really love the interaction he has with Priscilla and Aquila here. How do you think we can learn from from them reaching out to Apollos? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. Is Number one, um, if you're a, a, an older Christian who has some experience, always be willing to pull somebody young aside in love, in private. You know, don't confront people publicly. Don't embarrass them. Don't shame them pull them aside. That's what they do with Paulus. They don't interrupt him while he's preaching. You know, they don't interrupt him while he's teaching. They pull him aside. You know, nowadays they, they would have taken him to Starbucks, said, hey man, let's, let's talk about this. And they would have taught him a greater way. And so I think it teaches us two things. Number one, it teaches us about strategy. You need to have a relational strategy when you confront. You can be right and still be wrong. I think Priscilla and Aquila were right both in their reasoning and in their approach. And I think that's important. You need to have a relational strategy because they could have offended Apollos and where would we be now? Mm-hmm. We, we would have a very, very passionate, powerful preacher that doesn't have all the information. He needs to learn some more things. And uh, I've been that preacher. I've walked that life. Um, and you need people that love you enough to speak truth into your life. And so they do that in a very relational way, in a very kind way. Um, and they don't take any authority away from him but they do it privately. But what's amazing is here's Apollos, this young, brilliant guy who's humble enough to go, oh, I got it. And he becomes stronger and he becomes a better leader. And we hear a lot about this guy. I mean, he becomes one of the, one of the great leaders you know, in, in the church in Corinth. And he's talked about when we read uh, Corinthians and some say, I follow Apollos, some say, I follow Paul. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a rift in the church of Corinth because Apollos was such a strong leader that he rivaled Paul. That's who this guy is. Um, and, and that certainly wasn't, I don't think, anything between them. It was between their followers and their immaturity. But Apollos becomes a great, great guy. So if you're a young leader, open yourself up. And again, this is why you need to be in a community group with people who've known Jesus longer so they can speak truth into your life in a loving way. Because you can be excited and passionate and still be wrong. And a lot of young people are, and that's who Apollos is. And you need people with wisdom. You need people with history. You need people with... Um, you know, experience to speak into your life who know the gospel fully. And so Apollos is like, oh my gosh. And so it doesn't tell us exactly what that was. I wish that they would have told us. I think we can rightly assume that it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but Mm -hmm. the text doesn't say that's exactly what it is. It alludes to that, I I believe, in the next chapter. You know what, what you're just talking about happened to me this weekend. It was so cool. After services on Sunday morning, one of the uh, leaders in our church, she's older than me. I respect her a whole bunch. And she came up to me and uh, both challenged and encouraged me all at the same time. And uh, it just was super helpful and really gave me a lot to think about in terms of my role, what I do here at the church, and hopefully makes me better in serving other people and stuff. So yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of what you're talking about. And then to close out the chapter, it's pretty interesting. Um, everybody basically, uh, Ephesus, and I don't know if Priscilla and Aquila are a part of this, basically send out Apollos to go be a missionary somewhere in Acacia, which yeah. I think you can get a bowl of... That's like the, the hip, <laughs> yeah. hipster bull, right? Yeah. So that's kind of his next step until we learn about him a little bit later. Yeah, so uh, he, he becomes a missionary, and he's empowered by the Holy Spirit now. And, and, and he, knows, he, knows, he knows everything he needs to know about Jesus in terms of the gospel now, um, that you need to repent, believe, and, and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And that is the Lukean gospel. Repent of your sins. Believe in Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptized for your sins, and receive the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of this fourfold process of how Luke understands the gospel. And um, I think that's it, it's beautiful, and, and, it, and it works, and it's clear, and it's what we need to do. We need to repent of our sins. 
We need to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to be baptized. I, I think that's essential. If you haven't been baptized, you need to do that at our next upcoming baptism. And you need to open yourself up to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I want you to indwell me. I want you to move inside me, strengthen me, empower me. And I submit my life to your direction and to your words and wisdom. And God's Spirit, you know, I believe is going to manifest His self, himself in your life in a powerful way. And... Um, and again, it's not to turn you into a freak. Um, I think it's to turn you into a powerful weapon for the gospel. And um, that's my prayer every single week when I preach. You know, Holy Spirit, I pray that these would not be my words, but your words, that you would move in and through me so that people can hear you. Because without the Holy Spirit, nobody gets saved. Mm -hmm. So we need the Holy Spirit working both in the speaker and the hearer. He has to be involved in both ends for our lives to be changed. And uh, the Holy Spirit is the person, the third person of the Trinity, who works in the life of the believer today. And um, you want all of God that you can get, and you want that. And again, it doesn't have to be weird or bizarre. And I'm so sad and unfortunate that so many churches that emphasize the Holy Spirit are a little bit nutty. It's just really, really sad and tragic. And um, you know, just because somebody's weird doesn't mean you don't want the Holy Spirit. You want the Holy Spirit in your life. And uh, because without the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. So mm -hmm. um, again, this is, a, this is a bizarre thing. I wish Luke would have told us more about what Apollos was missing, but he didn't. He had some of the truth, but he had not all the truth. And what's amazing is he completely submitted to it, and the church is forever different uh, because of his evangelism. So it's great. Well, speaking of uh, baptism, our next baptisms are coming up here the first weekend in December at all three of our Sandals Church locations. And if you would like to get baptized, you can go to sandalschurch.com slash baptism. And while you're there, you can get a video of Pastor Matt teaching a little bit more about what it means to be baptized, and then you can sign up. Uh, for those baptisms, we would love to walk alongside you uh, into that journey. So you can do that at sandalschurch.com slash baptism. And of course, uh, we would, we're would we going to continue on here. Next week, we'll be in Acts chapter 19. We would love to get your questions here on the show. Mm -hmm. You can do that by sending us a message on Facebook to the Debrief Podcast, or you can um, send us a uh, question directly by going to debrief.show and then click the big red button that says ask a question. That's right. And don't forget, we are still running our debrief swag contest where you post a picture of yourself in your debrief t-shirt and you may get a chance to win one of our custom themed debrief hydro flask water bottles. We're going to be announcing the winner on our November 1st episode. So you still have a couple weeks to get those entries in, guys. Exactly. And all this information, details, the questions that Matt answered or asked, all that stuff can be found in our show notes uh, online at debrief.show slash 37. So if you want to um, uh, link your friend to a specific question that you heard Pastor Matt talk about or whatever, debrief.show slash 37. All right, Steph, you ready to take us out with some sweet, sweet inspiration? I sure am. This week's quote is, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. Wow, that's deep. I think that's my favorite one that you've had so far. It's not what you look at, mm -hmm. it's what Which you see. I believe it was thorough. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was very thorough. I like that. <laughs> very thorough. Yeah, no, that was, I, I actually am inspired by that. Thank you very much. I feel like we just ended on an up note. You know what? Let's put that on a post-it note and just stick it on the cover of your Bible for the next time you open it up to dive into the Word. Yeah, I like mm. that. And I feel dive like that's, into that's, the Word. Let's cover that's that. That's how God looks at it. It's not just what He looks at, it's what He sees. Mm. And so, you know, I think a lot of people judge us externally, but God looks at the heart and sees what's going on, on the inside. That's cool. 